Our scripture today is um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll give you a chance to find it in case you want to have that available when pastor's preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 16. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself, he is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word for us today. All right, good morning, church family. It's good to be gathered together. Good to open up uh, God's word and seek clarity, seek uh, wisdom, seek uh, understanding, as uh, this passage has already touched on quite a bit. Uh, if you are new with us, or maybe you missed last week for whatever reason, uh, we started a new series, and this series is called Untangling Jesus, uh, which is a pretty audacious claim if you think about it. Right? How do you untangle Jesus? Uh, but the idea of it, uh, and kind of the, the trajectory of the next uh, several weeks together, is, is we're going to talk about uh, what does it mean to uh, be a follower of Jesus today? 
Uh, and how do we live out the life of Jesus in the world that we live in today? Because it's pretty confusing, if you think about it. I mean, life in general is pretty confusing, but we kind of live in a pretty confusing time. Uh, and everywhere you look, there are versions of Christianity or, or kind of variations of Christianity. And, and so it's kind of confusing to know, okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus when it seems like the voices around me are so often competing or, or, or not on the same page? How do I follow Jesus uh, in the midst of this uh, time that we live in. And so uh, the idea of untangling Jesus is we're going to take these things that we're wondering, these questions that we have, and kind of trace the thread of these things uh, to the essence or the core of who is Jesus and what did he do? Uh, and, and to say, okay, in light of who Jesus is and what did he do, then how do we live? Right? It's kind of like uh, if you had an old, you remember like computer terminals, right? Now, if you're a Gen Zer, you have no idea what that is. But uh, computer terminals, right? You had a bunch of wires going to the back, and you were kind of figuring out, okay, what goes where? Right? What actually powers this thing? And so that's kind of the idea is we're tracing the wires to say, okay, what is the, what is the actual power and, and, and source of this life that we have in Jesus? And then in light of that, how do we live? Uh, for Gen Zers or younger folks, I used this picture of an operating system last week. Uh, so I want you to hang on to this because uh, last week we saw in, in 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul presented kind of two operating systems. And an operating system is how you interact with something, right? If you have an Apple uh, device, it has a certain set of rules and, and, and ways that you interact with the technology. But if you have an Android, uh, then you interact with it differently. I switched to Macs a couple years ago and there was a learning curve. I had to learn to do things differently. But now I go back and I'm like, oh, this is weird. Because that's how an operating system works. And what Paul introduced us to last week is that the way of Jesus is not just an app that you add to your life, but it is a new operating system, a new way of interacting with the world with certain rules and expectations and thoughts and, and ways of looking at things. Uh, and so that's what we're looking at through this series in 1 Corinthians, is, is how do we untangle Jesus from the mess of things and how do we live in light of who he is and what he's done for us? Uh, and the list of things that we're going to talk about are not things that I'm coming up with. They're not my, my hobby issues that I want to talk about. We're going to follow 1 Corinthians. Uh, because Paul wrote this letter to a young church in Corinth, a very pluralistic world, a very individualistic world, and, and he addresses some pretty significant issues. He talks about divisions. He talks about sexuality. He talks about my rights. What does it mean to have rights as a Christian in a world? He talks about unity and diversity. A lot of these things that, that we're feeling or we're wondering about today, Paul addresses then, and so we're going to follow his argument as he untangles Jesus for them to help us understand Jesus today. Uh, so today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, and, and Paul is going to kind of zero in on kind of the core of what this operating system is. And at the very core, like, what are some of the foundational or fundamental things that you need to understand about what it means to know Jesus and follow Jesus? Uh, and he's going to talk about this big word, truth. What is true? And how do I know what is true? Which is a really important question for all of us to answer. Because if something is true, then it's real. And if it's true and if it's real, then I need to adjust in light of that thing. I need, to, uh, I need to change my perspective in light of that thing. And so what is true, and how do I live in light of that? So we're going to talk about three things from Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians 2. First, I want to talk about the search for truth. Then I want to talk about the source of truth. And then third, we're going to talk about the signs of a truth-filled life. 
Right? So the search for truth, the source of truth. And third, the signs of a truth-filled life. Those will be on the screen as we go if you're a note-taker and you're like, I, that's too many S-words. Right? So we're going to talk first about the search for truth. Uh, lots of folks are searching for truth right now. Uh, we've kind of in, we're in this kind of moment where we're talking about misinformation and disinformation. Right? Where like everywhere you look, you're like, I'm not sure if I can trust what this actually says. Because right? some people are, are trying to misinform you where they present truth kind of skewed so that you can see it in their way. Uh, or there's just straight up like disinformation where people are, 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 are creating fake videos or fake photos and making you think that this is actually true when in fact it's not. And so we have conspiracy theories, we have fact checkers, there's, there's a lot of question around us uh, around what is true and how do we know it's true. And so we're searching for truth. Uh, because we used to, maybe two or three generations ago, and obviously I wasn't alive, but this is kind of as I re read this from folks, uh, kind of previously we looked outside of ourselves for truth. And so we would look to uh, like a, a religious leader or, or a church or religious body in order to help us know what is true. Or we would look to kind of a, a, a civic identity or, or a, a political or a national identity to help us know what is true. We, we tended to look outside of us or even just our family to, to help us know, okay, what is true? But we've kind of gone through a bit of a transformation over the past several generations where we no longer trust organizations or institutions or leaders to tell us what's true. And, and in some ways, for good reason, because there's been scandal and controversy, and, and we have more access to more information now, and so we need those institutions or organizations less, and so we're a little bit more skeptical of them. But what has happened is, is we've gone from looking for truth outside of ourselves to now looking for truth inside of ourselves. And so everywhere you look, you'll hear folks saying, well, we'll find whatever is true for you and live into that truth. Right? Because after all, you can't trust those who are outside, so the, the one thing that you can trust is yourself. So find what is true for you. I see, we'll see this all over the place. We see this in books, in podcasts. Oprah Winfrey talks about this all the time. There's Christian versions of this. Find what's true for you. And on the surface, that sounds really nice, because I don't have to worry about other people then. Right? I'm the only one who can decide what's true, so I'm the only one who can let me down. And so we like this way of approaching truth. But the problem that we're finding is that that way of truth actually is not very functional at a large scale. Right? Because it maybe it works for you, like, what's true for me? I, I like this thing, and so I'm going to embrace this thing. But, but when we start talking about larger things, which you have to do as, as, a, as a culture, as a community, we talk, talk about larger things, like, like what is justice? What is goodness? What is morality? What is love? We can't just say, oh, this is my truth. Because these things involve us coming together. And so kind of we found ourselves in this pretty intense polarized moment, or not moment, it's a long moment at this point, a long polarized space, and, and, and we kind of adopted this like, well, this is true for me. And so in response to this, where we don't agree with this, we tend to do a couple of things. We tend to get louder because I need to be heard, because this is my truth. And so we tend to shout, or we tend to make our voice heard in, in prominent kinds of ways. Uh, or we try to get more persuasive. We try to create maybe a good ad campaign or a good messaging campaign, or we've got marketing all over the place to, to try to convince people of the validity of your truth. 
Or we look kind of to power, and not just power like I'm in charge, but like, what do the masses say? Am I on the right side of the culture? Am I on the right side of the history? Am I on the right side? Are more people on this side or that side? And so we tend to choose sides, but, but the problem is we're still just saying, well, truth is whatever I make it to be, but, but when you disagree with me, I have to start yelling. I have to start convincing you of my truth. And this brings us very parallel to Paul's world and the world of the Corinthians. Because if you were with us last week, Paul was talking about these, uh, these people uh, in chapter 1, verse 10, who say, well, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and I follow Peter. Everyone was kind of picking and choosing whoever was the most persuasive or the loudest, the most, most prominent uh, leader in the church. And they did this because Corinth and, and kind of the world that they lived in loved persuasive people. Uh, they, they spent all their time just talking and debating. You think about uh, philosophers, like a lot of them came from this culture of arguing and debating over what is true and what is good and what is right and what is just. And so this operating system that they lived in actually did this very thing. And so Paul is writing to them because they're in this and they're embracing this and it's actually leading them in the wrong direction. And so what does Paul say in chapter 2, verse 1? If you have it open, I, I want you to have it open because we're going to look at this. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul now turns to himself and he says, I, when I came to you a couple months or a couple years ago, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might rest in the wisdom, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul is saying that, that when he was teaching them, and he, when he was communicating with them, he intentionally, he said, I decided, I intentionally chose that in my presentation and in my teaching, you would see weakness and fear and trembling which is an interesting communication tactic if you think about it. But the reason for that, he says in verse 5, that your faith, and what is this faith that he's talking about? He's talking about that your faith in Jesus, that your understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, or as he said in chapter 1, Christ crucified, that your faith in Christ crucified would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God which should invite you to ask a question. What does your faith in Jesus rest on? You have this faith in Jesus, or at least maybe you're open to this faith in Jesus because you're in church on Sunday morning, right? So you have this, this interest or this openness to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, but what does that rest on? Because Paul is saying that you can have a faith in Jesus that actually rests on the wisdom of men and not on the power of God. Now, what does that mean? I think it could look like a couple things. It, it means uh, I'm a Christian because my parents were a Christian. You know, I, I've always gone to church. And so, and so my understanding of, uh, of being a Christian is, is I'm a Christian because my parents want me to be. Because my parents uh, always drag me to church. And so it's just what I've always done. That's a faith based on someone else. I think a lot of times we do this, we, we, we base our understanding of what it means to be a Christian on what we consume. And so I'm a Christian because I read Christian books, or I listen to Christian music, or I listen to Christian radio, or 
uh, or, or I listen to this pastor or this preacher or this author. And so, and so my understanding of what it means to be a Christian is that it's actually based on someone else's thoughts of what it means to be a Christian rather than on the power of God. I'm a Christian because everyone around me is a Christian. You're basing your faith on the wisdom of men rather than the power of God. And so Paul is inviting you to, to use the word deconstruct your faith to say, okay, why do I actually believe what I believe? What is actually the basis for my faith or my understanding of Jesus? Is it, is it rooted in or is it plugged into the wisdom of men that someone else is telling me who Jesus is and I'm believing in their interpretation of who Jesus is? Or is it actually in the power of God? And in verses 6 through 9, he's going he's gonna to show, or he's going to, in a sense, provide a warning of, of the dangers of searching for truth in the wisdom of men. He's going to use the, the rulers of this age as an example. The rulers of this age would be like the people who were in charge, religious leaders, political leaders, cultural leaders, governmental leaders. They were the ones, Paul says, who crucified Jesus. Now, this is only 20 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, so they may, they may still be in power. They might still have that pulpit. And he uses them because in that day and age, if you were prominent enough or if you were a ruler or if you were an emperor, you could say, worship me as God, and people would say, okay. Because you're the emperor. You, have, you must have more knowledge than I do. You must have more wisdom than I do. You, you have prominence and you're persuasive, and, and so that must be true. And so he uses them as an example to show the dangers of basing your faith or your truth in the wisdom of men. And there's really two things, I think two things, two problems with that. The first is in verses 6 and 7. He says this, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So the first problem he highlights is this, is that these rulers, with all of their persuasiveness and all of their apparent wisdom, are doomed to pass away. Now that sounds like a really judgy statement, but there's a lot of words that Paul could have used if he was judging them. And says, instead, he says they're doomed to pass away. In other words, those folks who claim to be wise only have so long in this world. And what he's saying is this, is that if you base your understanding of truth or your understanding of faith on the wisdom of men, it will always be changing and shifting. Because the emperor might say, hey, trust me, I'm God. But then he dies, and the next guy comes and says, trust me, I'm God. And so it's which one is it? If you base your understanding of truth on the wisdom of men, it will always be changing and always be moving because that's how humans work. We're always changing. We're always shifting. And so you don't want to base your sense of truth on, on what do the people around me say because it's like chasing after the wind. It's doomed to pass away. And I think this is the problem. So, so sometimes if you're in, in a discussion or argument with someone about some of these really important things, sometimes uh, the, the, the statement will be, will be made, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I don't know if you've heard this before. About, often about social or cultural issues, it's like, well, you want to make sure you're on the right side of history. Because what we do is we look back to the past and we look at some of the, some of the atrocities of the past and we say, ooh, that's, ugh. How could people believe that? How could people do that? And so, and so we kind of say, well, from our position here, we look back into that and say, 
well, I don't understand how they did that, but, but we're more enlightened now. And so therefore, like, you want to be on the right side of history because you don't want people 50 years in the future looking back at you and saying, ooh, I don't know how they can, I don't know how they can do that. But the problem with that is it assumes that human history moves towards goodness. And that is not demonstrably true. I mean, just take uh, German culture, for example. At the, the end of the 1800s, German culture was kind of held up as, as kind of the pinnacle of liberal thinking. And I'm using liberal not in like the political term, but just like open-mindedness and broadness. It was kind of, the, if you want to study Old Testament history in like seminary, you have to know German because they were considered experts in this stuff. And yet that same culture, only two generations later, would give birth to the greatest atrocity that human history has ever seen, the Holocaust. And if human history always progresses towards goodness and justice and righteousness, then how come in the mid-1900s we created the atomic bomb? You see, this assumption that you can be on the right side of history doesn't work. And that's what Paul's saying is, is human wisdom is doomed to pass away. And so the question then becomes, okay, what are you basing your sense of truth on? What does Paul say in verse 7? We impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed, before the ages, before our glory. He says that next to the, the changing nature of culture and, and, and beliefs about what is good, right, just, and true, we have an unchanging truth that God has decreed and decided before the ages. And, and the purpose of that was actually for our glory, and he's going to get to that more. But the second thing that he shows about this wisdom is in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And here he's almost, he's almost getting uh, satirical because he's saying these rulers and all of their power and all their wisdom and all the things that they knew, they had the Lord of glory, Jesus, standing right in front of him, the one who is the author of all these things. And not only did they not recognize him, they crucified him. And so, as you go throughout your day in Corinth, you'd hear about these rulers, these authorities, and Paul wants you to remember that every time you see their glory, remember that they crucified the one who created glory. And so you can't trust in them for truth or wisdom. Which leads then to the source of truth, my second point. And it begins with a poem, verse 9, he says this, "'What no eye has seen nor ear has heard.'" nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. He's inviting you with that poetry into a space of wonder for a second. Say that the thing that I'm about to talk about is so profound and beautiful that we just need to stop and sit in poetry. He goes on, he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of Him, uh, the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Here's what Paul is saying here, right? The, the beginning of truth is the revelation of God. The beginning of truth, in other words, where we begin with truth, our foundation point, our starting point, 
For what is true and real in the world is the revelation of God. Now, I don't mean revelation like that book at the end of the Bible. I mean that that truth is dependent on God revealing truth to us. That we are dependent on God telling us and showing us about what is real, what is good, and what is true. That, that God is the one who holds these things, and so we're dependent on him in order to know what truth is. And he uses this really super practical example in verse 11. He says, he says look around you. Like, just look around you for a second. And there are people sitting around you. How much do you know about that person? You can, you can maybe figure out some things, but you can't really know that person. You can't know that person until that person shares some things with you, until that person opens up their heart to you, opens up their mind to you. You are dependent on that person to reveal themselves to you, to know that person. So, so what do you think God is like? If you can't even know the person literally sitting next to you without them revealing truth to you, we want to know who God is? We are dependent on him to tell us who he is and to tell us what he wants. In verse 9 in the poem, he says, your eyes can't perceive this, your ears can't grasp this, but God has something in store. And so God chooses to reveal himself to us. Right, that's the good news. Like God could just say, I'm, nope, they're over there, I'm over here. But God instead chooses, because he's loving and gracious, to tell us what is true and to reveal himself to us. And how does he do this? Paul says he does this through the Spirit. Now, if you look at how Paul describes this Spirit, this Spirit is not like a force. It's not a feeling. It is a person. The Spirit knows the depths of God. The Spirit reveals the truth of God. And even in verse, uh, in verse 16, at the very end, he says, he, he puts an equal sign between the Spirit and the mind of Christ. And so the spirit that he's talking about is the spirit that Jesus promised he would give us, God's Holy Spirit, who's co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. This spirit is now available to you to show you truth. And this is the spirit that Jesus said he would send to you that would always be with you. What does this spirit reveal? If, if the spirit is how God reveals things, then what does the spirit reveal? There's two things, I think, that the Spirit reveals. The first is this, is the Spirit reveals the love of God and the cross of Christ. The love of God and the cross of Christ. Paul talks about this, this folly in verse 14. The natural person cannot accept the things of the Spirit because they are folly. And remember, he's already used that term in 1 Corinthians 1 to refer to the cross of Christ. That, that people would look at the cross of Christ, we talked about this last week, and they would see failure. They would see scandal. They would see something they wanted nothing to do with. But, but what the Spirit reveals to us is that the cross of Christ is actually the culmination of God's love for you. God's love for us. That on the cross of Christ, he took on our sin and our failure and our shame, paid for it, and reconciles us to God. And so it is the Spirit that reveals these things to us. It is the Spirit that opens our eyes and opens our minds to understand this and to receive this and then to apply this to our lives. This is what the Spirit does. He reveals to us, as verse 9 says, what God has prepared for those who love him. But the second thing that the Spirit reveals is the Spirit also reveals the Word of God that shows us Christ. 
Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, all scripture is God-breathed. Literally like, uh, like God-spirited. God breathed out these words through the Holy Spirit to write these words down. And he says it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and training in righteousness so that the man of God might be equipped for every good work. He's saying the Spirit of God that wants to reveal God to you, he wants to show you the love of God and the cross of Christ, also inspired the Scriptures so that you can know this love with clarity and confidence. And this is what the Spirit does. He reveals these things to us. And so truth is not discovered by us. It's not created by us. It's, it's revealed to us. Or it's given to us. Look at what Paul says in verse 12. God is not stingy with this truth. Instead, he says that we might understand things freely given us by God. That you have in Christ, through the power of the Spirit, the revelation of God. That you can know truth. Truth as revealed in the Scriptures. And truth ultimately revealed in the cross of Christ. You see, I think we tend to approach this question of truth in the wrong way. And what I mean by that is, is this. We tend to start with our experience. Say, so, okay, what do, I, what do I feel? What have I gone through? What are my desires? What are my thoughts? We try, to, we try to search through our experience. And then what we do is we find a community of people who can help us make sense of that or, or agree with our feelings or, or affirm our feelings. And then what do we do is we go, to, we go to the scriptures, we go to the Bible, and we find the parts of the Bible that agree with us in those things. And so then we can take these verses, we can, we can make them say whatever we want them to say. But what the revelation that Paul is talking about here demands is that we begin first and foremost with the Spirit and the scriptures. That our starting point for knowing what is true is, is the Spirit who we receive through, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then the Scriptures, the Word that He has inspired to show us Jesus. And, and as we read the Scriptures, we don't do so alone, because if you read the Scriptures alone, you can get some really weird things. Really weird interpretations can come out if you're not there. And so what do you need? You need a community of people who are also submitted to the authority of the Scriptures, who have the same Spirit, who can say, no, that interpretation is whack. It doesn't make sense in light of this scripture. And then with the Spirit and with the scriptures in this community, then we go to our experience and say, okay, how do I make sense of this feeling in light of, in light of who God is? How do, make, how do I make sense of this desire in light of what God has revealed to us? And so, so we get this completely backwards often. But Paul says in verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but it's himself to be judged by no one. So last week we talked about how there's an incompatibility in the operating system sometimes. And one of the fundamental incompatibilities that Paul is highlighting here is that being a follower of Jesus demands that you submit to the authority of God's revelation. It's not an option. That if God has really revealed himself in the scriptures and in the cross of Christ, and Jesus affirms both of those things, then being a follower of Jesus in the operating system of Jesus means that this book is not optional. 
And then I have to wrestle with the things that are in here. I can't just kind of set it aside. Because this is how I know truth. And this is how I know Jesus. And so a fundamental foundational starting point for following Jesus is that I am submissive to the authority of God as revealed in his scriptures and as revealed by the Spirit. And and if, if you're talking about casting this aside, you're not talking about Christianity as Paul talks about Christianity. You're talking about something completely different. But the good news is that we have the truth. We have this revelation, and we can know who God is. And so what happens when you live a truth-filled life? My last point, I want to talk about the signs of a truth-filled life. That if you're living in light of this revelation, in light of this truth, what does that actually look like? And the first sign of a truth-filled life is this, humility. Humility. Which is typically the opposite of what we think of someone who claims to know the truth has, right? Because oftentimes, like, uh, like, if you, like, if you find new knowledge or you find new truth, uh, you just want to tell people about it. Uh, and then, like, we've probably all been in that argument where you're, like, arguing, and you just have that truth bomb that's just waiting, and you just cannot wait until they shut up so you can just drop that truth bomb and leave. You see, we tend to, when we have the truth, we tend to get really puffed up. In fact, Paul would say this, knowledge puffs up. And, and so we tend to become kind of puffy Christians, Right, where I have lots of truth and I've got lots of scripture references that I can drop in the Facebook common argument. Right? Or, or, or I'm not willing to listen to you and what you're going through because I'm just, just trying to get my word in so I can shove some Bible in your face. But if the truth that we have is the revelation of God, then we are completely and entirely dependent on God to reveal truth to us. Which means that the truth isn't yours. Uh, It's not something that you discovered. It's something that you've only received by the grace of God. And and, and at the heart of this truth is, is what Paul says, that God has prepared for those who love him. At the heart of this truth is that Christ died for you. And so if you're going to handle this truth, you handle this truth with humility. Because it's not yours. It was given to you. And at the heart of this truth is this message that, that apart from the grace of God, you're lost. And so the sign of, first sign of a truth-filled life is that, is that you're humble. You're humbling in the handling of the Scriptures. You're humble in, in what the Scriptures teach. Because it's the, it's the Word of God for you. You're not puffed up. But the second sign of a truth-filled life is confidence. Confidence. Now those two things sound contradictory. But confidence is not pride. Confidence is knowing. And I think the the revelation of God invites us into confidence in two directions. Confidence in the knowledge of God, and also confidence in the knowledge of self. So confidence in the knowledge of God. We are not, uh, it's not up to us to figure out who God is. Like sometimes people, the way that people talk about God is kind of like uh, that scene from The Office where Michael Scott is trying to create a religion for The Office. I know this is kind of a dated reference, but he's kind of like, he's in the conference room and he's like, uh, what, if, what if our God was like, had the body of an egret and the head of a platypus? 
And it's like ridiculous, but, but that's kind of how we are sometimes with God. It's like, I don't like this part of God, so maybe God is just like this. And we kind of ignore these other things about God. But, but we don't have to guess at or, or, or wonder at who God is. God has revealed to us who he is. And so we can have confidence in knowing who he is, that he is going to be true to his character. He's going to be true to the things that he said he is. Now, now we never get to the bottom of who God is. That's why Paul refers to this as a mystery. But we don't have to wonder if God is somehow one day going to change his character because he has shown us his character in these pages. And so we can have confidence, also have confidence that the things that the Bible teaches are the things that are true because God is the author of these things. But the second direction that we can have confidence in is confidence in ourself. And I don't mean confidence in ourself like, ooh, I'm great. I mean confidence to know who you are. I mean, Paul says in verse 9 that God has prepared love for you, that the Spirit dwells within you. And you see, in kind of our self-authorizing truth world, we say truth is up to you. And so kind of that's like a lot of anxiety if you think about it, that I have to somehow like discern deep within myself what's true. So I have to shut out all the other voices. I have to make sure I'm my, my most authentic self. And then I have to go out into the world and I have to make sure that people embrace my most authentic self. That is, that's exhausting. But if we have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God wants to communicate to us the love that God has for us in the cross. And the Spirit also dwells within us. And Romans 8, Paul says that the Spirit causes us to cry, Abba, Father, that you are not alone in, in discovering or figuring out who you are. Because God has made you, and the Spirit of God dwells within you, and the Spirit wants you to know how God thinks of you and how God feels about you. And so you're not left alone trying to figure out, okay, what's going on beneath the surface in here? What are, what are my emotions? What's my spiritual life like? You have the Spirit of God who wants to show you the love that God has for you. So this is why I think it's really important, like if you're a follower of Jesus and you're seeking counseling, which I think is really important to do because you got some stuff underneath the surface, I think it's important to do that with a Christian counselor. Someone who's going to be open to the work that the Spirit wants to do in that process so that you can know yourself as God knows you. The last sign of a truth-filled life is discernment. Discernment. Discernment is saying, okay, what is right and what is wrong? What is true and what is false? What is good and what is evil? Paul says this at the very end. He says, he says the spiritual person judges, judges all things. Now we have in the scriptures uh, God's, uh, God's truth about what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is just. And so because of this revelation, we can now discern in our world what should we do. Uh, but he says this, that this looks like the mind of Christ. In other words, uh, the mindset that we have as we're reading the scriptures is not just like, can I find a verse to slap on the issue? But instead, what would Jesus do in this space? What does the mind of Christ call me to do? When I was in college, I was an RA, and I often, as a Christian college, uh, guys would come to me and they're like, I'm not sure if I should be doing this thing. Uh, and after a while of trying to like help them think through, I started to just ask them a question. It was like, can you picture Jesus doing that thing? And oftentimes it was really personal, private kinds of questions that they would have, and they would kind of, it was just like clarifying. It was like, if Jesus, if you can't picture Jesus doing that thing, Jesus is revealed in the scriptures, then the Spirit wants to lead you in a Christ-likeness, so maybe you should stop doing that thing. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. Christ is revealed in the scriptures through the power of the Spirit. 
You see, we're not left on our own to figure out what truth is. God has given it to us. And he invites us to live in response to that. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you did not abandon us in our search and our question and our wondering. But you in your grace revealed to us who you are. That you sent Christ to us in a way that we can understand. To sent Christ to die for us so that our sins can be forgiven, so that we can be united with you. Have your spirit showing us truth. God, I pray that we would be people of humility who hold this truth knowing the grace and the cost of that truth. People of confidence, knowing who you are and knowing who we are in light of the gospel. And people of discernment as we seek to follow you in this world. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.